Hello from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Welcome back, Clark. We have a, we have a not a cast of thousands, but a cast of three. Uh, Clark is back from his vacation. Devin Bodkin is here from Eastern Idaho. We will hear from him later about intrigue in one Eastern Idaho school district that is dealing with a lot of crowding issues. But we've got a lot of other stuff to get caught up on this week. We sure do, Kevin, and I promise it'll be a shorter podcast than last week. I want to make that promise right now. We guarantee it. (laughs) But uh, let's let's start talking about, uh, you had a project this week, Kevin, where you took a little bit closer look at advanced placement courses, uh, kind of some advanced uh, credit-type courses at the high school level in in Idaho. Uh, Tell me what you looked into and, and what you found. Well, we wind up looking at some numbers that uh, we got from the College Board. Now, the College Board is the nonprofit that administers the advanced placement tests. And Randy Schrader, our data analyst, uh, unearthed some numbers through the College Board. And there's good news and there's some not-so-good news as far as Idaho is concerned. The good news, there's no question about it. More and more students across the state are taking AP classes. So you've got more high school kids enrolling in AP classes, taking AP tests, and passing AP tests, which allow them to, uh, to graduate high school with some college credits, those numbers are good. And even as the numbers have increased, even as more kids are taking the tests and enrolling in the classes, the uh, success rate for students uh, passing the AP tests is still pretty good. It's still higher than the national average by uh, several percentage points. That's the good news. The not-so-good news, uh, the percentage of kids who are graduating high school in Idaho with any kind of AP credits, is still well below the national average. Uh, We have one of the lowest rates in the nation. We're down alongside uh, several states in the Deep South and a few states in the Midwest, uh, Wyoming, all kind of rural states. When you look at the the states at the bottom of that that list, it's states a lot like Idaho, a pretty rural demographic. And that's the challenge going forward. You know, as we talk about the AP program and we talk about all of these programs that the state is doing to try to get more high school kids to consider uh, going on to college, continuing their education, there's still this gap between uh, students in urban areas, maybe in more uh, affluent uh, school districts, and students in rural districts or poorer districts or both. Uh, there's, uh, there's a big challenge in terms of trying to get students in rural Idaho to consider looking at college, and it starts to some degree with the AP classes. Uh, What we've seen over the years is uh, a lot of students in districts like Boise or or West Ada or or Coeur d'Alene taking AP classes, not so much when you look at uh, rural Idaho. Yeah, I, that's what I wanted to ask about, Kevin, if you did see a, di- a discrepancy between uh, some of the districts or had any idea uh, why that might be that variation. Uh, and, and I think you touched on it, but it, it's the rural versus the more affluent, more, more developed communities, right? Right, and what I think will be interesting to watch now is um, as we looked at these numbers and the increase in AP coursework over the past decade, One of the things that's changed now is uh, the state is really not just encouraging high school kids to take AP classes, they're paying kids to take AP tests. It's part of this uh, whole advanced opportunities program that allows students to access $4,125, a line of credit that they can use to take a dual credit class, to take some summer classes, to take an AP exam. 
so we'll see if the opportunity to do this basically on, on the taxpayer's nickel, if that encourages more students to take AP classes and, and you know, we'll see. We're still very early in that process, but uh, it's, you know, part of, you know, a big sea change that uh, folks at the state level are hoping to, to you know, make happen. They're, they're hoping to get more kids to go to college and they're trying a lot of different methods to encourage that. AP is just one of those avenues. It was good to look at these numbers right now and get sort of a, a barometer of where, of where we stand. And that's uh, the story that you can see at uh, IdahoHeadNews.org. And, and this kind of relates in, you know, not directly related to our post-secondary goals, but, but certainly a cousin and, and a factor when we talk about wanting to get uh, more students with a uh, college or a post-secondary certificate type of experience uh, to help prepare our workforce. But uh, essentially what you found is that in some cases, in, in some districts, maybe in several districts, the students are leaving free money on the table, right? Right. And that's, uh, you know, that's what we'll see. I mean, we definitely are seeing a lot of money uh, being spent. The whole Advanced Opportunities Program is uh, is exceeding what legislators expected in terms right. of cost. And that isn't necessarily a bad problem to have. I mean, if you have more more students trying to uh, access these programs and avail themselves of these opportunities, uh, I suspect a lot of folks would look at that as a good problem to have. Right. But what happens around the state and what happens in terms of uh, student interest around the state, that, that's going to be really telling and really significant in terms of trying to get to this uh, this goal of uh, having more high school grads go on to post-secondary, whether that's four-year college or two-year college or, or what have you, you have to develop more interest uh, across the state, not just in, in the big districts, not just in the more well-to-do districts and, and charter schools. So this kind of just gives us a snapshot of where we are as the state continues to ramp up on this investment. Uh, it's an interesting report. Uh, folks can head over to IdahoEdNews.org uh, and find that out if they want to dig around, look at the numbers, uh, and take a little bit closer uh, look at that story. It's interesting, and it really does uh, play into some of the larger goals and some of the larger experiences uh, right. that the state has uh, with education. So be sure and check that out. Okay. Next topic, and what would a week be without a, a story about ESSA? The Every Student Succeeds Act, Clark's uh, summer of ESSA continues. But now you're drilling down into some of the, the nitty-gritty of what is in this proposed ESSA plan, this ESSA plan in progress, and, and look really at how the state is going to try to define low-performing schools. Interesting stuff you found, so walk us through. Yeah, it really, I, I attended a bunch of meetings uh, earlier in the summer in June, and one of the things that jumped out at to me is regular folks just don't know what is in this plan. And so mm -hmm. what this is, just real quick background here, Idaho has just over two months uh, to finish its massive plan to comply with the Every Student Succeeds Act. That's a federal law that replaced the controversial No Child Left Behind Act. And it's going to start governing our schools in the upcoming 2017-2018 school year. This is about a 75-page document. It's basically Idaho's application to receive and spend something like $82 million a year in federal funding. Uh, but there's all kinds of different information in that plan. There's, there's our goals for education, and there's an accountability system, which is notable because at no point during current superintendent of public instruction, Sherry Ybarra's term, uh, during her first three years or so in office, we have never had 
an official accountability system in place. This would put one in. And so that's noteworthy. And I'm going to, just a warning here, I'm going to get into the weeds just a tiny bit. And we're going to talk about numbers and we're going to talk about statistics in just a little bit. But I think if you follow me there, we get a real clear picture of how this might affect small rural schools differently um, than bigger schools. And so one of it comes down to how you define a low performing school. Right. That's one of the big parts um, of ESSA. One of many parts, but we have to identify the lowest 5% uh, of performing public schools in Idaho. And then come up with a plan to try to get them to improve. Right, and then come up with a plan to try and get them to improve. There's a fancy term called comprehensive support and improvement. There's some extra federal money uh, that would come along with these schools that are identified as low performing. And then there would be this three-year period where they develop a plan in the first year and then implement the plan over the second two years. And some of the factors that go into deciding what our lowest performing schools are. Let's just look at, at traditional public school high schools uh, for, for one segment here. So we're looking at student proficiency rates on the SBAC test, the assessment test that students take every year, typically in the 10th grade level at the high school. That's one indicator. Uh, Four-year graduation rate is a second indicator. And then a third indicator is proficiency rates among students who are learning the English language, how they're doing on their English tests. So those are the factors that will determine the low-performing schools. But the state has to set some parameters uh, around the data they're going to collect. And so think of this as like a sample size or a student group size. As part of the ESSA plan, the state has to set a minimum sample size or a minimum student group size. Right now, the current draft calls for setting that minimum student group size at 25 students. And so mm -hmm. what that really means when the rubber meets the road at the end of the day is any high school that has a graduating class of less than 25 students or any high school that has a 10th grade class of less than 25 mm -hmm. students that would be taking the SBAC every year, they're essentially going to be exempt from those major identification and low-performing requirements uh, out of ESSA. They'll, they'll just sort of be skipped um, the public and will how many high schools fall into that? What percentage of high schools fall into that? If they stick with the number of 25 for the sample size, that's going to exclude 16% of Idaho high schools. I think that's we're talking about 30 shot. high schools. Yeah. So that actually means more high schools would be excluded uh, than would be included among mm -hmm. the 5% right. of low-performing schools. And so where they set that bar uh, is going to be important. They're talking about anywhere... Between 10 and 30 is where they could set the student group reporting uh, parameters, although the debate is really either 20 or 25 in Idaho. That's really what we've homed in on. Um, it also sets up a potential wrinkle for larger schools, and, and let's get into that just for a second. If 16% of your smallest rural schools are excluded, that means mathematically it's possible that a larger school could get flagged as among the bottom 5% uh, of low-performing public schools, when in fact they're not really mm -hmm. in the bottom 5%. Maybe they're closer to 10% or even 12% or 15%. Um, and so it's kind of interesting. So the larger schools, some of them may get flagged unfairly, if you will, uh, as a low-performing school. And meanwhile, you may have a low-performing school that might really need the extra help from the state and the extra federal funding that won't be eligible for any of that because they're not deemed large enough to be in the uh, in the sample? That's exactly right. If, if you're not deemed large enough to be in the sample, you miss being labeled as a low-performing school, but you also miss sharing 
uh, 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 an equal share of about $2 million in, in federal funding. And so the thing I'm wondering about is certainly it just stands to reason that uh, a small amount of money would go farther in a small rural district than it would in a larger district like, say, your Boise, West Ada, Nampa, that kind of thing. But those small schools would miss out uh, on the boost in, in federal funding. And the argument here is that if I've got a real small school, say I've got a graduating class of 10 students, and one or two students don't show up or don't take the test seriously at all, that can really skew my average sample size. Right. And so that is the argument, and that, and that makes sense. But it comes down to statistically what's valid, what's fair, and there's also even potentially some student privacy concerns when we get into the very smallest of the small right. And we run into those districts. privacy issues with kind of all of the data that we collect. Uh, you get into these smaller districts, you get uh, you get asterisks in in the uh, in the fields on the spreadsheets as opposed to actual numbers. So we, we see that before and we see that elsewhere. But we know that Idaho Idaho's background is really small rural schools. Right. We have small rural schools all throughout the state. And, and to me, it's interesting uh, how we set up this accountability plan, uh, how we select these schools, and, and whether or not those decisions uh, would affect the amount of federal money that is intended to flow to support low-improving schools. It's just something I wanted to point out. I'm not saying anybody's doing anything wrong or trying to do anything in secret in the middle of the night. I just, it was interesting to me, and I just wanted to point it out, and it struck me over and over again that regular folks just don't know the details of what's in this ESSA plan. And so that's kind of how my summer's going to continue uh, throughout the month of July and into the beginning part of August. I'm going to have articles every week just breaking out a segment uh, of this document, of this plan. I think next week I might talk about uh, goal setting, some of the state goals for education that are in there, some of the concerns that lawmakers had a couple of weeks ago when they really took a look at those numbers. Uh, later on, I want to take a look at some of the support that will be available for school districts once they are uh, identified as low-performing. So these articles will get a little bit technical, a little bit wonky, but... But it's important I, stuff. It's good stuff. It's really going to affect how our schools are governed, uh, and, and the standards they're held accountable for really moving forward. And so I think it is important for folks, whether they have a family member or a son or a daughter in public schools, whether they're a taxpayer and they're concerned about where their money is going and how it will be spent, I think it really is important and it affects almost everybody. Uh, but I know that it is just a little bit inside baseball. But uh, check that out over at Idaho Ed News. Next week we'll have more stories uh, breaking down different components uh, of the ESSA plan. So stick around all summer. Uh, and there are important deadlines coming up both in August and in September. September 18th is the big final deadline to submit it uh, to the Fed. So certainly stay tuned. Um, but let's switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about the upcoming gubernatorial race in Idaho. 2018 is going to be a huge year uh, for elections in the state. But what do we know uh, about Boise-based developer uh, and, and Dr. Tommy Alquist? And where he stands on Common Core, because Kevin, I don't know uh, at, at this point, but what did we learn this week? You had a conversation with his staff. Right. So this kind of goes back to June uh, in an interview that uh, Tommy Alquist did with the Associated Press. The Associated Press reported that uh, Alquist was uh, talking about repealing Common Core, the, the Idaho version of the, the Common Core standards. He said it's got to go, right? He said it had to go. That's the quote that uh, Associated Press uh, got from, from Alquist. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, he appeared on uh, the Rival Point of Personal Privilege podcast and talked about how 
he felt that the rollout, the implementation of the standards was horrific, was the word he used on more than one occasion, and said that as a parent, as a father of uh, a couple of uh, daughters, 12 and 14, that he was really troubled by the way the standards were rolled out. So I went to the campaign and tried to get a sense of, well, well, what is this? Is he opposed to the standards or is he concerned about the rollout? The the word from the campaign now is that his concern is with the rollout, that his concern was with, with the implementation. That's the source of his frustration. Um, but, you know, However. but, you know, again, and the campaign kind of suggested, well, and kind of suggested, they said that uh, they felt that the AP story took uh, Alquist's comments out of context. Uh, Kimberly Crucey, the AP reporter who, who broke that story back in June, provided a quote to to us and, and sent it out on Twitter where uh, she had Alquist saying that the standards had to go, like you were talking about before. So She has it recorded. Right. Uh, to so, me, it seems pretty cut and dry. There is no other context. We're talking about a man running for governor and the public and journalist rightly asking his policy positions on important academic issues. Uh, I don't know where he stands. And to me, there is no other context. These are academic standards. You either support them or you want to repeal them. And this kind of gets into the weeds of that intricate adversarial relationship between reporters and and politicians. But uh, one of the things I pointed out in our story is... um, the AP story, the original AP story that the Alquist campaign now says it has issue with, still appears on the Alquist for Governor campaign webpage. So apparently their, their issues with it are not so uh, so onerous that, uh, that they're not posting the story on, on the website. So we'll watch and we'll see. And I'm sure this question is going to come up a lot more between now and the May primary. Uh, where does he stand? Where does Brad Little come down on this issue? Where does Raul Labrador come down on, on Common Core? And it's not just about the standards that we have in place right now. It's what do you do with the standards? Do you repeal? Do you repeal and replace? I mean, there are a lot of different permutations. And, you know, at the end of the day, and, and I think I kind of talked about this a little bit in the podcast last week when, when we had Seth O'Gilvy on, you know, from Point of Personal Privilege, he said, yeah, I think we're going to have to spend a lot more time writing about Common Core in the classroom and looking at, all right, beyond all the heat and light, beyond all of the the political posturing about Common Core, how is this working in the classroom? We're now four years into the standards in the classroom. What's going on in the classroom? What's going on with the standards? What's going on with the test? And, And really help readers understand the on-the-ground implementation of, of Common Core and the implications of Common Core so that uh, readers can you know, listen to the, the political positioning on this issue and, and have a little bit better sense of what's really going on. So, again, our work's cut out for us on, on this issue as well as many others. Yeah, fair enough. And it is a complicated issue. I don't mean to make light about it. No. Certainly it's controversial. We have heard concerns uh, about the rollout before. I just expect uh, a pretty clear policy point, and I don't think we have that at this point, which is unfortunate. But I want to shift gears. I want to talk about the big story of the summer in the Bonneville School District. We have, uh, we're lucky to have our Eastern Idaho reporter, Devin Bodkin, uh, in the office today on the podcast. Devin, Bonneville was going forward with a bond issue, but then not so fast. Tell me, give me the background from a couple weeks ago, and then things heated up this week with a new school board member, right? F- fill us in on the background, and then let us know what happened. Yeah, so the, the big news coming out of Bonneville was that they have, they 
the board out there supported um, a measure to move forward with a $58 million bond issue. Earlier this week, they backtracked on that. And so what basically happened was there was a board member, the chairman of the board, mm-hmm. his name's Jeff Bird, who uh, didn't want to run again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the person who replaced him, Scott Lynch, had a different opinion about that $58 million bond issue. And uh, the original approval was a split decision. So it was a 3-2 vote. So with Lynch coming in, he essentially had the ability he to... He swung the balance exactly. of power yeah. away from the middle school proposal. So some people were expecting it. He made a motion to rescind that $58 million bond issue. and the, But they haven't done anything yet. We don't know what's going to happen. They, sure. the, but they're shooting for the November election. At this point, they don't really have anything solid. It could be one of two things. It could be that they uh, go for an elementary school instead. Because we're talking about a middle school with the original. Yes, and right? a, a middle, and a, it was a $58 million middle school. Right. And the the issue here is just the, um, the rapid growth that Ammon, the city of Ammon, where Bonneville is located, is experiencing. There's so much growth there. And so the, the, the basic issue is this. Do they build a middle school? which would require a change in how the district does things. It would require the district to move their sixth graders, who are now in elementary schools, up into that middle, those new middle schools. Uh, well, one new middle school with the other two that they have. It's c- kind of complex. Parents, some parents don't like that idea. Sure. And so now the idea, uh, the possibility is to build an elementary school instead and then spread those uh, elementary students out into another New elementary school, and keep, which would be less expensive, to which build, would be yeah. about twenty nine million dollars. Uh, the proponents for the for the middle school, though, even though it's fifty eight million dollars, the supporters of that idea say that that might make more sense economically because the district's going to have to likely build a new middle school in the next five to six years anyway. And they they argue that the the middle school takes care of both those problems because it alleviates overcrowding in the elementary school and then it would obviously be a brand new middle school to go along with the other two that they now have to, you know, the curb overcrowding in the middle schools as well. A lot of interesting politics here now because you've got clearly a divided school board. You've got division between some members of the school board and the superintendent. Mm -hmm. And one way or the other, this is a district that's got growth issues. It's going to have to come before voters with something maybe as early as November and try to get two-thirds support when there isn't really two-thirds support for much of anything uh, at the school board level. That's going to be interesting politics to watch. Yeah, that's something that came up during the meeting. And that was a point of concern from people on, from board members and Superintendent Chuck Shackett that they feel like they're not even united in their plan to move forward. How are they going to get a supermajority of voters out there to be united. Which is always tough to do. It's tough to get that two-thirds support, especially you're on the heels of the community college that was approved in Bonneville County. You you were talking before off off mic that Idaho Falls School District may be looking at a bond issue at some point here, too. And Bonneville voters have rejected recent bonds, right? Yeah, this is a district that voters have said. I mean, their their current high school that they're building that uh, is almost completed, it failed three times. Yeah. And they had to take the middle school out of that package to get it approved, right? They started out about $95 million, and by the time they got that school bond issue passed, it was $65 million. Yeah. It's, it's a fascinating debate. You're going to continue uh, to cover it all summer. I expect we look for the next 
school board meeting and we look for a, an upcoming school board uh, meeting uh, or maybe some community meetings to see where they go next? Yeah, it could be one of two things. They could go back to the elementary option, like I said earlier, the $29 million option. But one of the trustees, after the decision was made to nix the $58 million bond issue, one of the one of the trustees chimed in and said, hey, I want to still explore this possibility of having a new elementary school and a new middle school. So at this point, they've got a lot of work to do. They're trying to shoot for the November election, which... Uh, we don't know for sure if Idaho Falls, which is right next to Bonneville, is going to go for that election. They have a they have a redesign project that could be a hundred million dollars, and I called uh, that district as well. They don't know yet. It could be November, but one thing's certain: Bonneville is shooting for that November election, and they could be. Uh, doing it at the same time that uh, Idaho Falls is going to be floating their big bond too. So between these two school districts and you've got the rollout of the College of Eastern Idaho, you've you've got a lot going on to yeah. keep an eye on. Like we talked about earlier, Kevin, that'll be an interesting thing to talk. Uh, uh, maybe a story on possible voter fatigue out there. I know it's mm-hmm. something that comes up in every one of these meetings that I go to. And off the record, as I talk to some of these uh, administrators, they say we don't know when so and so is running their bond, and we got to remember that this uh, big community college vote just went through too, and which was controversial. I mean, it's a big issue yeah. out there. And, and that's a conservative community. We'll, we've all spent time covering uh, Bonneville County. It's, it's tough to get two-thirds in any community, and, and that's, uh, that's a tough, tough community to get a bond issue pass, as we've seen. I, I'm glad you're on it, Devin. I know you'll stay on the story uh, all summer long and into the fall and, and November. Uh, if folks want to follow the latest, uh, give us a follow on Twitter, at Idaho Ed News, for all the latest news out of Bonneville uh, and the rest of the state for all the other issues we cover, uh, whether it's advanced opportunities, uh, whether it's this federal ESA plan, whether it's bond and levies uh, across the state. We break all of our news on Twitter. I want to thank everybody so much for listening and for not taking my comments out of context. Uh, we really have a lot of fun on the Extra Credit Podcast, and I'm glad that you guys do too. Devin, thanks for coming over uh, and keeping us up to speed with uh, issues in eastern Idaho. Uh, That really helps us bring our coverage uh, across the state, and and that's been awesome. But uh, thanks so much, as always, for listening, and have a great week. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.